that's that's probably the biggest thing that I put forth is even for emerging leaders. So even for maybe undergraduate students who haven't had much or any formal leadership experience, it's the realization that guess what? You've already done leadership. You just didn't know that that's what it was at the time. It's time for the Limitless Leadership Lounge in partnership with Heroes for All. Do you want to be a leader? In a constantly changing world, our emerging leaders look different, come from various backgrounds and from all different age groups. Leadership is changing and it's hard to keep up. But the good news, you can be a leader too. You can be an emerging leader. Welcome to the Limitless Leadership Lounge, a tri-generational conversation for emerging leaders. Come spend some time with us to discuss leadership from three angles. The coach, Jim Johnson. The professor, Dr. Anuma Kareem. The host, John Gehring, a monthly guest. And you. Get in on the conversation on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Spreaker. So come on in and make yourself comfortable. And we're back for another week of the Limitless Leadership Lounge. It's a tri-generational conversation for you, the emerging leader, Here is where we talk about uh, leadership, give you tips, advice, and of course, hear from you, the listener, too. Uh, Be sure you're reviewing us and uh, subscribing to whatever platform your favorite one is. We've gotten a couple more reviews this week up on Audible, so we thank you for listening up there, as well as Apple Podcasts. And now our new YouTube channel, you can subscribe to that as well. I'm John Gehring, as always, joined by Dr. Anuma Kareem and Coach Jim Johnson. And this week, we have another special guest and another doctor, um, at least in the, in the title, um, Mike <laughs> Polanski from, from RIT. And Mike, it's just phenomenal to have you on. I, I heard you on Linda Healer's podcast, um, the Normal Lies podcast, which, by the way, if you don't know of Linda Healer's podcast, it's a phenomenal one. If you love love the content with, that we put out here, you'll love that one as well. Uh, but I heard Mike talking about his whole leadership philosophy, which we'll, we'll get into uh, here first. But Mike, you are a professor of management. You teach leadership, cross-cultural management, organizational behavior, business ethics, and you teach across all um, levels of, of college students. So let's just first dive in and, and ask you about your leadership philosophy, which you call the me first philosophy, me first leadership philosophy, and, and where that came from and, and what kind of research you did to uh, come to the conclusion that that is what leadership is. Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, it's really uh, a pleasure to be here and a privilege. Um, and thank you for the kind introduction. So yeah, the me first method. Um, boy, how, you know, how long do we have? Let's get comfortable for a couple hours. But um, I, uh, leadership has been my professional life for, for close to two decades. And very early on, when I started my PhD program, and that's when I start the clock, I walked in on day one and I asked my professor, later became my advisor and my good friend, uh, Fran Yamarino. I said, so, you know, how do we define leadership here in, <laughs> in academia land? And he just started laughing and he said, you'll see. And what he meant by that was if you ask 100 people, what's your definition of leadership, you'll get at least 100, if not 200 answers. <laughs> so it's this thing that we all kind of know and love and or hate and yet can't agree on exactly what it is. So, um, you know, that's, that's our starting point. But the thing that I have learned over the years, and this is through my own personal experience and working with teams that I've led and working with uh, students of many varieties, working with executives, is, is this. I think that the error 
that we often make as leaders is that our first inclination when there's a, a challenge or a problem, our first inclination is to try to change others' behavior or, or I should say, and or change the situation that we find ourselves in. And that doesn't mean in a manipulative way or anything, but often have we heard, you know, the great leaders motivate others. That's what they're there to do. Great leaders influence others. And, and certainly that's true. But what I found is when that is our first option, we are missing the very biggest opportunity. And that's to focus on ourselves first. So when we change ourselves, not only do we get better, when I change Mike, Mike gets better, but I'm also my greatest point of leverage in any social system of which I'm a part, right? So if I want to actually change others or change the situation, I got to change myself. That's how to, to do it. Yeah, and I, I resonate with uh, this uh, idea so much because earlier, and I'm coming from Bangladesh uh, and in a culture and a woman, so in a culture where we have the tendency to please everybody. So making others, others the priority first. So, and I was doing that for such a long time. And I know that I have to make all everybody happy while I was missing on developing myself to a new level. And I wasn't doing justice, but as soon as I started my nonprofit, saying no to people, uh, getting that time for me to grow and to help or prioritizing, getting that discipline to sleep properly, like instead of saying yes to others and getting that discipline to sleep, work, uh, workout and all those things made me, making me a better leader now. So I have more attention, more energy. So what have you found? Uh, what have you find, uh, find in your life that, uh, that really helped you uh, to with this me first approach? Oh boy, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's, it's, it's simply this, that as leaders, as people, doesn't have to even be in a leadership situation, when we face the inevitable challenges, we are going to expend resources to meet that challenge. Mm -hmm. We're going to expend time. Sometimes it's, you know, actual tangible capital resources. We're going to expend energy, emotions, all of it. And um, that, that, that's a given. We're, go we're going to have to make an outlay there. So the question then becomes, what kind of outlay do we want to make? Mm. So it feels like a lot of work sometimes. But when we look at the totality of it, by doing that, I think it, it garners greater returns. So I know that's sort of an indirect answer to your question. But for me, it is really continually reminding myself of, of that, that mm -hmm. fact. And it often boils down to me in a couple of just phrases that I, I come back to over and over. How do I want to show up? Mm -hmm. right? What's my best thinking? And my all-time favorite, this was given to me why one of my coaches is, who am I responsible to and what am I responsible for? Sure. Right? If I can just put things through just those two questions, mm -hmm. already, you know, half, half the battle's already run, won. Right. That's true. Perfect. <laughs> true. So, Mike, uh, I'm excited. I just ordered your, your book package there. Can you take us and give us a little synopsis about your book? Certainly. Yeah. So the book is The Me First Method. It's a leader's guide to finding, facing, and embracing your next big challenge. So I wrote this book based on the experiences that I've had over the years, especially with my executive MBA students, mm -hmm. all of whom were facing a big challenge. I mean, 
no, no surprise there. You don't spend two years of your life and, and tens of thousands of dollars to join an executive MBA program unless, <laughs> unless you want right. to do something with it. But it was, it's written for the people that are looking to move up, sometimes move out of an organization. So get a promotion, do something different. But it's also for the folks that maybe don't know what's coming next. All they really know is what I have right now is not going to cut it. The status quo is not something that I can, can maintain, even if the status quo is, is pretty good, looking to do something more. So that's who the book is written for. And what I do is I, I talk about that. I talk about what big challenges look like and talk about um, how we can think about facing them, talk about the resistance that we will inevitably meet when we start to, you know, as soon as we decide to do something, <laughs> it goes from rainbows and unicorns to, to you know, to storm clouds and, and speed bumps. And I really mixed some metaphors there, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my suggested solution to that is to take a me first approach. So me first is both an acronym and a philosophy. The philosophy, I think we've already sort of covered that we want to focus on ourselves first. The acronym though, and the model that follows from it, the method M is for motivation. So we spend a lot of time developing our personal leadership purpose statement, PLPS. So getting clear on what our vision is, what we want the future to look like for ourselves, what our mission is, the things that we're going to do, and more importantly, not do, to bring about that vision, and then clarifying our, our core values that help guide us day to day. And by the way, do that for individual leaders, but I also talk about what that looks like for teams and for organizations. So always keeping multiple perspectives in mind. So that's the M. Uh, the E is a double. It's educate and evaluate. And so this is where most leadership development takes place. If you've ever done a, an assessment of some sort of personality assessment or a 360 degree survey, there's going to be a list of competencies or personality traits and you answer a bunch of questions. And sometimes other people answer questions and you get this profile and identify some areas to work on. And those are usually knowledge or skills-based there is very definitely a place for that. And so that's where mm -hmm. that part of it com comes in. And I particularly focus on building one's leader identity, hmm. that sense of who am I as a leader? And there's a good deal of research that shows that developing a strong leader identity forms the basis for not only effectiveness, but ongoing development too. So it, it's a great foundation. This is such an excellent example of growth mindset. Like Absolutely. Yes. Instead of just de being defensive, because I have seen so many people, when you try to identify the problem, they become so defensive and there is no room for growth. So, and uh, often we also talk about like, we have to learn how to unlearn yeah. and we don't do that so often. So it is so important for leaders to have that open mind and growth mindset. 100%. Please. It's me first, M-E, the numeral one, S-T. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's that's the book. That's the website too. Firstmethod.com. <laughs> that's me first method. Okay. Um, In the show notes too. Down that's below. right. Just scroll down. Yeah. <laughs> to motivate, educate, and evaluate. The one is just a little reminder, one step at a time. Mm. Also makes the acronym work. Okay. Perfect. So the next step is S, strategize. And this is where we spend a lot of time taking what we've learned in the educate and evaluate, comparing it with what our vision and mission and values are and coming up with an actual strategy 
things mm. that we're going to try. And I have a number of different um, steps in that. One of the things that people have told me that's most interesting is in that chapter, in that step, I cover goal setting, which I'm sure you've talked about, mm-hmm. right? having specific challenging goals drives performance. But I also have the flip side of that coin, which is growth letting. And there's a good deal of research that shows that sometimes we should not set goals because it activates a performance mindset. We're trying to perform instead of a developmental mindset. So kind of related to growth mindset. So just kind of setting a general direction and seeing what happens. So that's strategize. And then the T is simply test, Mm -hmm. just like a scientist, create little experiments, see what happens. And as long as we have set up a good experiment and executed it, we always win because we're always getting information. The old, you know, Thomas Edison, 999 ways of not inventing the light bulb. So you hit on the one. Yeah. So um, there's, there's several streams of research that underlie that. Um, But uh, yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. So I'm really fascinated, Mike, because you've spent your life. I mean, it's clear through the story with Sam in your book, through everything you do um, in your research, which is there's a long list of that as well. And just the day-to-day interactions you have with students at RIT. Um, And now also you've opened up uh, this empowered to lead um, organization as well, where you help leaders find face and embrace their next big challenge. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then it's kind of a two-part question here. Sorry to throw you a curveball, but about empower to lead and also what gives you that, that first letter of the acronym motivation to do all of these different things um, all to help out younger people achieve their next big uh, obstacle. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the nice thing about leadership as an academic field is that it is very applied. It has its own body of knowledge. It's you know a, a branch of, of social science. So there's a lot of really good stuff there, but it, it, it's leadership. So it's, it's immediately um, applicable. And the most rewarding things that I've done in my career are um, come up with sort of a theoretical idea, kind of work on, on that, on the, the writing and the academic side. As soon as those ideas are halfway developed, putting them into practice and seeing what happens. And, you know, sometimes we do a pretty good job, and, but there's a lot of tweaking that goes on. And so we see how it it actually plays in the real world. And then that informs the research, which in terms like there's this nice iterative back and forth process. Hmm. So I pride myself on a very few things, but this is one of them. I try very, very hard not to do anything professionally that doesn't get at least two uses out of it. I am constantly trying to leverage things. Hmm. Um, and two is the minimum, three or four is better. So um, from from the very beginning uh, of my career, I would do things on the side. Sometimes the phone would ring and I'd do a little consulting gig or a little bit of coaching. And it was about three years ago that I decided, you know, I, I really want to make this into a, an actual real business. So that was the founding of Empower to Lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off in sort of the consulting path, working with the company, designing some leader development programs. Here's my pandemic story, right? The pandemic hits, you know, we go from huge plans to my counterpart being laid off three weeks later, the whole thing collapsed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> emerging from that about a year ago, once kind of got our, you know, our heads above water, I realized that for me, the writing, the thinking and the coaching is actually 
more in line with where my, my gifts, my interests lie, at least at this point. So the, the Me First Method book, I, I wrote it in under six months. Wow. We're like, wow, that's really fast. But that's, that's not true. It, you know, I wrote it in six months and it was 20 years in the making, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Over 4,000 citations um, that your research has been used. And so obviously you've, you've done a little bit of research on this topic before. A little bit, uh, a little bit yeah. <laughs> uh, but Mike, uh, one thing I have while teaching, at, uh, teaching college students, one thing I have seen that they have this tendency of instant gratification. Mm. So which is like the quick fix in your chapter, you also talked about it. So even if they know what they're good, good at or what they want to do, their passion or things like that, they are often resisting to take that step. And that's where the resistance comes. So right. it's like a self-sabotaging uh, power that is pulling them back and all those negative thoughts coming into your head. Like just go there and do a nine to five job and all that you will be safe instead of going to that empowering zone. So for those kind of uh, individuals, are there any tips on how to rewire their brain and overcome the resistance? Any tips that you would like to give them? Oh, yes. So, of course, we all have that, that desire for instant, instant wins and instant yeah. gratification. I mean, of course, you know, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> just part of being human. Mm-hmm. And then when we don't get that, which we often don't, think that there's something wrong, you know, with ourselves or with whatever process we're trying to engage in. And I, I think part of it is just putting forth the message over and over and over again in different ways that most of the time there isn't a shortcut. Most of the time there is not a silver bullet right. or a, a, a magic wand. I mean, sometimes it happens, right? There, mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. Just enough to somebody that Somebody that somebody you know knows, right? It's always, you know, it's never somebody you know directly. It's one handshake away, right? So there's this sort of like mythical quality about it. It does happen. But for most of us, it's getting comfortable with um, with the long haul. The, uh, the term resistance, by the way, which I talk about in the book, comes from a great little book called um, The War of Art. Mm. Oh, yeah. Stephen Pressfield, yeah. Yes, and it's it's written towards authors primarily, mm-hmm. but it, it applies to all of us. And he is just an incredibly gifted writer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he says in there is, um, before he was a writer, he was a United States Marine. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what the defining characteristics of, of Marines is, is that Marines just enjoy being miserable more than other people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that that's it. Like they look forward to being miserable and that's what prepared him to be a great writer is just being comfortable with being miserable most of the time. <laughs> right. right. That's true. Great, great said. Hey, Mike, yes. uh, changing a little bit, but you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, with your business that you um, help with team building. I'm curious because, you know, I was a high school coach and built teams for over three decades. And uh, one of the things that I'm always curious, because when I do presentations to leaderships to, lead, uh, to leaders, uh, one of the things I challenge them is how do you build trust with your team? Because I really believe you have to be intentional with that. And I, I lay out, but I'm curious, what, from your perspective, where have you found to build trust uh, in teams? Yeah. So trust, which I define as that willingness to be vulnerable mm-hmm. to one another. There's an element of risk in it. And 
one of the, the interesting things that research about trust shows is that one of the biggest drivers of trust is, well, it's actually three things. Um, I have a nice little acronym for it, ACT. Mm. Right? If you want somebody to trust you, you have to act. And by the way, trust, like love, is in the eye of the beholder. You can't make someone else trust you any more than you can make someone else love you. But what we can do is present ourselves as trustworthy. And so the ACT acronym, you can see I have a lot of acronyms, <laughs> is, is geared towards showing that we are trustworthy. And it's three things. So A is ability. In order to be trusted, you have to have at least a baseline of ability. So, so coach, in, in basketball, you're a basketball NBA finals are going on right now my beloved Boston Celtics are back in the final many years they're down but they're going to come back I'm, I'm okay <laughs> okay it's all good um but I, I think about that even at the highest level and professional basketball player at the end of the game when one team's behind the other team's following who are they trying to come in a file for if they want to get the ball back the worst free throw shooter on the other team and you can have I mean Anybody that's in the NBA has talent beyond, you know, mortal people. And yet there's some of them that couldn't make a free throw to save their lives. And, and you just kind of scratch yourself the head. Like, how did these people ever make it to the NBA? Right. You have, to have that ability. Okay. Um, the C is character. And this is kind of a two-parter. One, it's showing care and concern. The old, you know, I hate cliches. This one's kind of true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, yes, it's it's accurate. Okay. But the other part is um, is behavioral integrity. And that is the consistency between words and actions. So the values that you talk about, do you actually act like those are important? The promises that you make, do you keep them? <laughs> so just following through on your word goes a long way. And then finally, the T is, is transparency. Right. And so forthcoming, not only the amount of information, but the types of information that you're sharing. Isn't it amazing how far or how much um, uh, benefit of the doubt people will extend to you if you show your work, if you show what your thought process is, even if you have to make a decision that they don't like or don't agree with, if you can show that you truly thought about it and considered all sides, it goes such a long way towards developing that trust, even when the outcome isn't what they were looking for. Right. Uh, I think it's a great point because uh, one of the things, uh, it's interesting, you said two things because I have a three-pronged, it has very similarities and one of them is aligning your words and actions, which is so powerful. And second thing, you know, is I talk about all the time about telling the truth and, yeah. you know, that's where transparency comes in. And you, know, but you had a great point and something I learned not early in my career, but later on and got better is the fact that I, you know, I would share if, even if they just didn't agree with my final decision, I would at least share my reasons. And I think that helped them buy into it, even though not only they did not always uh, agree with it, but at least they knew from where I was coming from. And mm. I think that's the power, which I, so I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, we actually we had uh, David Horsiger on, who's a who's big in, into trust, and and he talked about not needing to agree with someone to um, to trust them. And I think that's an important point that you just made, Coach, is that trust is not 
something that you you always agree with that person or you know you're always happy with with the outcome that that comes up uh, mike could you share maybe a time in in your professional experience where you you had a, a a breach of trust or or someone um breached your trust and you you needed to overcome that and and you needed to do so even through a disagreement yeah um you know i think one of the um most difficult aspects of trust and and breach of trust is when the other party is not a person, but is a, a group or an organization. Right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if, if I were to offend one of you and, and were to violate your trust, now we have a, a one-on-one situation we need to deal with. But what happens when your employer, for instance, violates your trust and maybe not even know that, that they have done so? Um, this, I think, happened pretty frequently during the last two years with, with the pandemic. And so often it was inadvertent and yet so real. The one thing that's coming to mind is um, with the whole return to office that we've been dealing with for the last year. Two years ago, everybody needs to go home. People go home, perform just as well. And then at some point it's time to come back to the office. Well, why exactly? Um, well, because, you know, that's, that's the way we do things around here. And then there's that, you know, the mythical water cooler conversations and, and so forth. That whole dynamic is a breach of trust. Mm-hmm. And the trust is from the company perspective. We trust you to do your job for the last year or two years. And now all of a sudden we don't, we're not extending that. that that's a real problem. And I, um, seen that similar dynamic play out um, again and again. And it's hard because it's, it's sort of a, uh, you can sure, maybe you can look at the CEO or, or something, but often it's, it's sort of a, a nameless, faceless organization that's breaching the trust or being perceived to. That's really difficult. Right. And we tend to do repeat the same thing over and over. And, and we do not want to get away from our traditional way of doing stuff. So I think, and that's why I think there was this quote I really love. Uh, Einstein said that we cannot solve the problem with the same thinking we used when we started it. But this often goes on and on. And that's why we can see the, again, we have a war, uh, the pandemic also. We knew there are a lot of lessons to learn from the previous pandemics, but we didn't carry through those knowledges. So these are some things that fascinates me. Uh, and like, why do, doesn't the leaders see, see these things? When the history, the record, everything has it. So uh, uh, my, uh, one of the things that I, find, I found out in your uh, book are the prime values. So what, could you explain a little bit about the prime values and also why you think that too many of prime values, having too many of prime values is a mistake? Yeah. So. In, um, in the chapter, in the step on, on motivation, one of the, the big parts of that is as individuals, individual leaders, identifying our two primary values. And, and I, I need to give full credit to Dr. Brene Brown in her terrific book, um, Dare to Lead, right. or this thought, because I've done values work for, for many, many years and I, you know, different inventories and different ways about helping people identify their values. What Brene Brown pointed out in her book is to focus in on two and only two. 
hmm. kind of echoing Jim Collins um, of the good to great fame, his admonition that if you have more than three priorities, you have no priorities. Hmm. When it comes to values, that's that's pretty accurate as well. Um, and I find, I found this myself when I did that exercise, it's pretty easy to get down to five or six kind of foundational values. And if, if I give you a list of 100 values, uh, which I do um, as part of the, the book, you could spend 10 minutes and kind of go through that list once or twice and you can get down to half a dozen. Mm-hmm. To go from six to two though is, wow, it's really difficult. And then to define each of those values and then to give several examples of when you are and you are not living out those values. Mm-hmm. That is really, really challenging. Right. But what you get at the end of that process, and by the way, I, I say this in the book, when I did this, I, I hated it. I thought this would be the easiest step. It took me weeks. And I would literally try on values like, okay, security, you know, that was on my list of six or seven. Today, I'm going to live as if security is one of my foundational values. So I'm going to make all my decisions based on that and try it on. And then, you know, a day or two later, no, that's not it. Um, but once you do get it down to two well-defined values, the usefulness is to run every decision that you make through that framework. And if you cannot relate a decision that's of you know, any, anything more than inconsequential consequences, I mean, right? <laughs> if, if, if it's more than just a mundane decision, it should be able to be related to at least one of those two values. If it's not, you really need to ask yourself why you're doing it. And by the way, you know, if, if you find over and over and over again that it doesn't seem to be working, that might be a signal that maybe one of your values isn't so valuable. But, but this is not only for individuals, but organizations. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I do, I do recommend uh, relaxing it a bit, you know, for teams and organizations, uh, three, three values, I mean, a little bit more leeway there, but still keeping it on point. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's interesting because that's also part of the me first. Um, It all kind of ties together, right? Because in order to identify, you know, your what matters to you, you need to identify those values. That's part of leading yourself, right? Is that is that something that all sort of ties together? Every aspect of leadership really goes back to to your me first philosophy. Certainly, you know, if leadership, however we define it, however we define it, at the gut level, it's about getting something done. It's about bringing about a future state that wouldn't have brought itself about. Right. So leadership is always about results, always about action. But what, what results and what action? Just getting results for the sake of getting results is, mm. is, is pointless. I mean, it might feel good, but what's the point? Um, if there's any human activity that needs to be purpose-driven... Say leadership is front and center. Right. Sure. Mike, you do a lot of work, uh, obviously, with college students. You know, both in in undergrad and in postgrad. I'm curious uh, because you know our show theme is about trying to help young and emerging leaders. So, working with all these young people, what's the best piece of advice you've been sharing with them to help them become a more effective leader? So I really, I really try to, to limit my advice giving. That's part of, for me, that's part of the me first method. Mm. Instead, I 
make an attempt to put forth put forth my best thinking and and you know, people can consider it or 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 not and and that's okay so the thing that i put forth is simply this uh, leader identity is key here if we think about identity, that sense of who we are, one of the ways we can think about that are the different hats that we wear, the roles that we play. So right now, you know, I'm, I'm speaking with all of you, and I guess I sort of have a, you know, a professor hat on and a coach hat on, and a guest hat. So we wear these different roles. Um, after we're done here, I'm back uh, out working in the yard. <laughs> so there's my homeowner hat. And then, you know, I'll have the dad hat, and husband hat, and friend hat, and so forth. If we think about the leader hat, that role of what it means to be a leader, what's unique about it is it really does cut across different domains or different of life. You can be a leader at work, certainly. You can be a leader in the classroom. You can be a leader with your friends, with your family. That's, that's probably the biggest thing that I put forth is even for emerging leaders, so even for maybe undergraduate students who haven't had much or any formal leadership experience, it's the realization that guess what? You've already done leadership. You just didn't know that that's what it was at the time. So start with those lessons, draw those out, and then do more of it. There's so much development that we can do with not adding anything else to our plates. Yeah. Oh, I love that, uh, Mike. And actually, um, before I dive into my last question here, I just want to say that uh, we we interviewed um, five high school students um, locally here in, in one of our episodes. And if you are, if you have the chance and you're listening right now and you want to check out another episode, that's a really cool one to check out because we learned that these high school students, they might not have even realized it, but they were already leaders in their relationships, in the roles that they had in high school. And they're going to be incredible leaders in the future. But my last question for you, Mike, has to do with your role at RIT right now, because you're in the College of Business. And I mean, you teach a lot of different things from cross-cultural management, organizational behavior, business ethics, and and so many more. Um, but for this position of, of teaching leadership, I think this is something that, that's very unique to you in in the program, right? How would you reply to someone who may not understand exactly what it is that you teach to these young individuals on a daily basis? Mm, sort of the, okay, you're a leadership professor. Like, what, what is that? It's an interesting question. And for many years, I took a very theoretical approach to it. And I don't mean that to sound negative or pejorative. I think sometimes we say, oh, that's just theoretical. Good theory is important incredibly useful and incredibly practical. And there was great value in walking through a class of all of the different kind of major theories or families of theories of leadership. So kind of tracing the history of, of the study of leadership from it's all about the traits that someone has. Well, no, that isn't quite right. Well, maybe it's their skills. Well, that's part of it, but that's not quite right. Oh, it has to do with the leader-follower relationship. Yes, that helps. That's not it. It has to do with charisma. Oh, charisma is really important, but that's not the full pie. Oh, it's all about servant leadership, right? So we're just kind of baking a pie one piece at a time. That is very helpful. Um, but what I have shifted to over the years, especially with younger students, undergraduate students, um, those that have limited leadership experience, is making it much more experiential. So making it team-based. Now, students of any major are, are 
very used to working in teams. I mean, back when I was, you know, a college student, that was kind of a new thing, you know, mm. team-based work. Now it's, it's commonplace, but what usually happens? Um, you're either assigned to a team or you get to pick your own. You're given some sort of a project. You do the divide and conquer. You know, everybody divvies it up. If you're in a team of five, you know one or two of those people are going to not follow through. And then two days before, the most conscientious person on the team ends up cleaning up everyone's mess and turns it in. Right? That's it. <laughs> right. right? That's how it goes 90% yeah. of the time. Uh, right, Renuma? I mean, yeah, is, is I'm getting it, that right? always. <laughs> So, That's why I have peer evaluation, which is yes, right, uh, right, and and, and <laughs> sometimes that helps, and sometimes then they collude to like you know not mess <laughs> each other up, and so what we decided to do was to make a purposeful team class with smaller teams focused on a project, layering on some project management skills, rotating the formal team leadership, requiring feedback every week, and so you get naked really fast. I mean, to, to, to be quite blunt right. um, to the point where having to facilitate some, some team meetings where people are screaming at each other. And I love it. <laughs> and, and, and I'm, because there's something for everybody there for the, for the slacker. It's an opportunity to realize that this is not acceptable. You need to step up mm. for the, for the dutiful person who just wants to kind of avoid, you know, do, do their work, but avoid conflict showing that sometimes you have the greatest insight and you need to make that known. Right. And then my favorite is for the conscientious students that were the ones that cleaned up the mess, telling them sometimes point blank, you need to not do anything. You need to let other people trip over their own feet and not step in. And I know that's going to be the hardest thing in the world for you. Right. But do it because better to do it here in this class and learn that lesson right now where it's very, very minimal risk. Hmm. And, um, and to me, that's the most gratifying. So it's, it's trying to provoke problems in a respectful, ethical way. But I mean, that that's when it works best. Hmm. That's kind of how it's evolved over the years. Yeah. yeah. And that's why in my uh, classes, when there are this kind of conflict, they would email me, this student is not helping. And what should I do? I like, okay, first you try to solve the problem, right? Find out all those ways. So at the end, if nothing works, then I will get in and try to solve it. So they, and majority of the case, uh, thankfully for the last two years, they have found a way to solve it and they feel good. Like, Oh, I solved this problem with the team. And that also empowers them into a new level of decision-making. Yeah. It, it, it's such, those are so, such fun conversations to have as a, as a right. professor, as a teacher, as a coach. Uh, my favorite is when, when students come and say, so-and-so isn't doing their job. My immediate response is, and what is your responsibility for that? Mm-hmm. And they're like the deer in the headlights. And, and, and I do appreciate the, the courage it takes to bring that forth sometimes. Right. Right. But to turn it around and say, you're responsible, at least partially for that. Tell me why it's mind blown. Mm. And I used to, I used to ask that and, and be a little unsure of myself, but now I ask it with full confidence because at the very minimum, the people bringing the forth that problem have failed to hold one another accountable. Right. So there's always that lesson to be learned in there. So that, 
there's so much good stuff happens when, when bad things happen. Right. <laughs> Mike, um, for my final question, um, you know, because I did so much work with teams over the years, I'm curious, especially now with what we've gone through with the pandemic. And, and as you mentioned earlier in this interview that, uh, you know, it, different workplaces are handling coming back to work differently. You know, some are still saying you can work all virtual. Some are saying you got to, you know, come in some of the time. Some really insist now we want to get the whole time. With your observation and working with leaders, what advice would you give them about now in the situation that we are in, where we're starting, I guess, to come out of the pandemic, but we still have some unique work situations. How do you uh, keep a good culture through these challenging times? Well, what would your advice be on that? So there's two things that I think are starting to emerge in the, in the research. Um, and we're far enough along into this that we're moving out of anecdotal into, into some, some more reliable research. Uh, two things. One, the companies that seem to be having some success are the ones that put forth their best thinking at a particular point in time with as much transparency as they can muster, and they have an, a check-in date. So we're going to come back, you know, hybrid two days a week, and we're going to revisit it in three months or six months. So don't get too comfortable um, because we need to to adapt. We don't know how this is going to work out. So they're very, very forthcoming that this is an experiment. This is our best shot, our best guess for right now. It may need to change. So doing that. The other one is I think that um, some companies and some teams are actually asking themselves, to what extent do we need to be a team? Mm -hmm. And by team, I mean a collection of interdependent individuals. I think because you know, teamwork is so great and, and it can accomplish so many things, sometimes we superimpose the team structure in a situation mm -hmm. where we don't need to. We would be fine as a group of loosely connected individuals instead of kind of this forced interconnection. Um, and then I, I think sometimes it's taken even further. One of the things, one of my pet peeves, one of the things that drives me nuts, drives me nuts, is the welcome to the XYZ family. You're not a family. Your workplace is not your family unless it's a family business, right? You're literally family. I, I love the people that I work with. I love the students. I love my colleagues, um, you know, we're not a family. And to try to impose that level of closeness, emotional closeness is, um, I, I think it's irresponsible and, and ultimately undermines what can happen there. So all that to say, do we need to be a team? Mm -hmm. Wow. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a new perspective that, you know, a lot of times we think that's, it has to be good. It makes you feel warm inside, right? But maybe right. it's <laughs> unnecessary um, and, and actually detrimental as you speak to. Uh, finally, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on today. And and we uh, we got a lot from you and especially um, listening to you talk about your me first philosophy, which obviously comes from a lot of research. And um, your book is is also available now as Coach and Renuma have, have already um, gotten and 
also your your new organization too. That also is something else you're doing along with your work at RIT. So with all of that, could you just give our audience a summary of um, what you do and what the best way would be to get in touch with you um, if anyone wants to learn more about you or uh, purchase your book or potentially get involved with your organization? Oh, certainly. Well, thank you. Um, yes. So uh, my book, The Me First Method, is um, is available at mefirstmethod.com, which I know you put in the show notes. Um, so that is the best way to, to get a hold of it. I, I try to package it up for $9.99. It's the ebook, the audio book, a whole bunch of extras and, and bonuses. I'm just putting all my best thinking out there so that it's accessible for, for, um, for anyone. Um, you can also contact me through the website there, or you can visit mikepolanski.com and uh, contact me right through the, the website as well. There we go. Awesome. He is Mike Polanski. Um, and of course, all those those uh, information down in the show notes. So go check those out to, to learn more about Mike and um, also to get his book and, and all of his resources that he's put together for us. Thank you so much for being on today, Mike. Oh, thank you so much, all three of you. This has been a, an absolute joy. Thank you for joining us this week at the Limitless Leadership Lounge. To listen to this episode again and to find previous episodes, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Spreaker. You can also get in on the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Then tell three of your friends to join in as well. Coach, Renuma, and John will be back again next week for another tri-generational leadership discussion. We'll talk to you then on the Limitless Leadership Lounge. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.